This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club, the world's first photo book of the month club. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected names in contemporary photography to select a first edition monograph that's a must-have for every collection. Each book arrives signed by the artist along with a note card and print from its guest curator with free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. Past curators have included Alex Soth, Mark Steinmetz, and Melissa Catanese, and many other photographers who you've heard on this podcast. I gotta say, Charcoal really is the best and most exciting way to stay up to date with the most essential work in contemporary photography. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. I first heard of Marcelo Yanez through a mutual friend, Bryson Rand, when he took out this tabloid format publication called Newspaper to show me. In Bryson's typical humility, he didn't even mention the photo of his that graced the cover, but instead wanted to show me the other work inside that he was so excited about, and especially about who put this all together. At 19 years old, Marcelo Yanez took on a project. He had discovered a publication from the early 70s called Newspaper that featured the work of photographers in the downtown New York scene. He fell in love with it and began to work on a revival of it with contemporary artists. In a loose leaf insert that came with the first issue of the revival, Marcelo wrote about treating newspaper as an alternative exhibition space and letting other queer artists know that if they're in a particular geographical area where queer spaces don't exist, to get in touch so we can form a community. I remember reading that and feeling such a generosity and initiative in that offering. It both impressed and charmed me. I knew this person was doing something special. While he was working on newspaper, he was studying art history at NYU with minors in German and medieval studies, was working at the Fales Library doing archival work, and he was also making his own photographs. He got into photography at a very young age in San Juan where he grew up, but as someone with such a sophisticated eye, I wondered when he first started getting really excited about looking at photos. It didn't come till like much later. I think I was probably like 15 mm-hmm. or 16 that I started to look at photos more critically. Like I feel like when I was growing up and like was taking pictures, it was more about the technology and using the camera. And I like, I really loved my camera, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I didn't start getting excited about it till a friend of mine showed me David Armstrong's work mm. when I was like 16, 17. Which work of his? Uh, the silver cord mm-hmm. and that was like when I started seeing the possibilities of like portraiture and like photography I think it was just like the fact that everyone like looks so beautiful and comfortable and like compositionally they're nothing like what I was told was super strong like um there was no rule of thirds or like, you know, there weren't like, there wasn't like, you, you didn't see the entire body and there wasn't like a landscape and there was like a bunch of things going on. It was like, they were really direct. Um, but the, the gaze that the subjects had was so intense and like, I knew it like took a lot of skill to get there. Mm-hmm. Like it was at that point that I started photographing like people and I started photographing a friend of mine from high school and it was really hard for me to like photograph him directly, like him looking at me through the camera. How come? I don't know. Maybe it was like a, a self-consciousness. This was also at the point that I was figuring out 
my sexuality and I was afraid that I was like sexualizing him with the camera. I don't know, like, I don't know if there was some guilt about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you got into it really young. You start kind of trying your hand at it. Um, I first heard your name through our mutual friend Bryson Rand, who you published in Newspaper. I wonder if you could talk a bit about Newspaper and how you came to it. There's two newspapers. <laughs> you know, there's there's a publication in the 1960s, which I started, like I found when I was working as an archivist um, for um, this guy, Danny Fields. And he was part of the downtown scene in the 60s and had been he'd been like a staple in the Warhol crowd the factory and he had a collection of these magazines and when I fe- when I started looking at them I recognized a lot of the photographs in it um this is already when I was in college I was 19 and I had been taking like history of photo classes mm-hmm. I recognized Hujar photographs and Arbus photographs and started researching that and I kind of fell in love with the the format of the publication and um it was also at this point that I was really thinking about the photographs that I had been looking at in terms of like photographs that depicted men and how they were affecting me um and my relationship to my body and I looked at like the public the, the, the queer publications that were out there which were just two and so I, Which were just what? Just two public. I mean, there was like Gay Letter and Hello Mister were like the two things that, you know, I would hear about or see in New York. And so I started, I made a revival of the original newspaper, um, copyrights that expired. And I contacted his family, Steve Lawrence's family, but they never, they didn't want to talk to me. So I started this like revival and trying to see how I could reprint it, but with contemporary photographers. Although I did include some people who were in the original publication, which Mm -hmm. was like how I felt comfortable taking on this project. Like they approved of it. So I was like, who approved of it? Just, um, people who were friends with Hujar. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. You discover news, the the newspaper that was published in the sixties and you're really taken by it. And you're 19 years old at the time when you decide that you want to do a revival of this publication with contemporary photographers. There's a precociousness in that, and I'm curious where where you think that comes from. I don't know. I think I've, I guess I've always kind of been like that. I used to hang out, like, weekends with, like, 60-year-olds who, like, used to collect stamps, and I was, like, too. Yeah. eight years old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, actually, like, there had been a plan... When I, my, my friend Mark was like arranging that when I got to New York that I was going to meet David Armstrong because, and we were going to go to his house and then we had made this plan and then David Armstrong died. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just seems like everyone, this older generation of artists were really accessible. And the first person I had contacted even before the newspaper had been an idea in my head was um, this photographer Robert Flint. And I had known his work in high school and I was really interested in double exposures and like surrealist type of imagery. And um, I just remember emailing Robert one day and saying like, hey, I'm thinking about trying to organize this this photo salon. Um, There had been a poet in New York, um, Alex Dimitrov, who had done these series of uh, readings and these evenings of poetry focused on one writer and he did them across apartments in New York City. 
Mm-hmm. He would just, you know, people lent him their apartments in order to have these gatherings happen. And I wanted to do something similar with, um, with queer photographers. And a lot of the, like what Alex had been doing was getting older queer writers and like younger people and trying to have everyone talking in like a living room. Um, but when I met Robert, he, you know, it was so easy. It was just like, I went and I saw him and he introduced me like to other people and everyone wanted to help and was open to seeing this get done. And I was like, okay, well, I just have to figure out how to get it done and how to get the money to print this. And I knew how to work within design and Photoshop and I had done publishing before, but for my school, like my high school. Was it that idea of wanting to have community looking back at uh, older queer communities and seeing that stuff going on as being one of the more interesting parts in that time and work that was being made? Yeah, I I have had always like a fascination with um, community and trying to to make a community or like seeing them form especially because like when I was in high school I didn't really have like access to like many people like I didn't feel very connected to anyone and I feel like there was a hope around the entire project of like bringing people together and having this dialogue between like the dead and the living I don't think I I, I intentionally started thinking about it as like a social map or a sociogram or whatever till till later when I started doing you know other work and I started working at at the library at NYU and you know met people who became my mentors and stuff but Mm -hmm. I just want to touch upon something that you just alluded to which was wanting to have a dialogue between those older generations people who had passed away and contemporary artists broadly speaking like if you if you look back like let's say on who jars and warner rovich's generation and what they were dealing with what they wanted to speak to how is it different than what contemporary queer artists are dealing with well i think there has to be like some distinction made which is what my concern was when i started the publication was that there's like who and like warner rovich and um were people who are already on the fringes of a type of, of like a community. Like, you know, they're like gay lib was happening and you had, you had people who were trying to integrate with the rest of society. And then you had people who were trying to not integrate. They were trying to, to still keep being gay or lesbian, uh, somewhat illicit and, they have some belief that like their work is not going to be understood. It's not made for people outside of this realm of knowledge. Um, you know, that like they're working with signs and gestures and feelings that are particular to their social condition. And I appreciated that in Wojnarowicz's work and I appreciated that in Hujar's work and I wasn't concerned with, like, photographers who were making, like, gay work to try and show people what being gay was or, like, for it to be understood by other people. And um, 
I remember L when I did the first newspaper just sent me two images and it was one was a portrait of Hopkinsburg and then the other one um was of a binder and like unless you have friends who have used a binder or you've seen a bind like it it's a very queer thing like it's it's just a I don't think it's something that would make um sense outside of that realm and i'm i'm really interested in this idea of like gestures and traces and symbols that will only be understood by people who are within its realm of being understood mm -hmm. um and i think with queerness that's like that goes hand in hand so another part of your work that is related to the publishing efforts has been working with Marvin Taylor at the Fales Library at NYU. How did you meet Marvin and come to that work? Marvin Taylor is an archivist. Um, he's the head of special collections at NYU, and he's just like a mad genius, but built this collection of... Um, called the downtown collection of materials basically that in the 90s when people were dying when his friends were dying these people were dying and leaving behind a lot of artwork and just their papers um and these were people who died before gaining recognition yet because they were in their 20s and 30s and whatever you know people who were still making their career and uh, he took it upon himself to start gathering all these materials and he started taking them into the library. And NYU eventually let him, you know, they were okay with him bringing these, these materials in. And he started this amazing collection on the downtown scene in the 1980s in the East Village. I met him trying to research the newspaper he didn't he had never seen it had never heard of it um which was prom which was promising to me and just the fact that i knew i was doing something like new in terms of like art historical research and he was very encouraging and put me in touch with a couple of people and then i got a fellowship my junior year and uh, he was paired as my mentor and i wrote on voinorovich and, and hujar and i guess it was that summer that i really got to know him and then I got another fellowship. I started working at the library as a, I guess as a researcher, but also like as an employee of the library. I mean, it's it was all very technical library archiving stuff, but um, I would meet with him every week, had a lot of conversations with him, but I think what, what has impacted me about him is just the way, like his methodology. Um, he uh, He's organized the library in, in terms of a social map and a sociogram. And he, so everyone in the library is pretty connected. Um, and papers are acquired based on, you know, if this person was friends with this other person. And he, and when I was researching the original newspaper, that was a methodology that I stuck to a lot. You know, I, I tried to map out all the people that were in the magazine and, I started branching out into um, who knew who 
and who slept with who because I was just trying to get at reaching people who were still alive. I was trying to see who I could talk to who would know something because so many of the people who were in the publication died. Mm-hmm. Um, so Marvin's Marvin's mission at the library has really impacted the way I've seen. Like I understand this this idea of community and how community can find itself um, in an institution. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to my conversation with Marcelo Yanez. To see more of Marcelo's work, follow us on Instagram at Magic Hour Podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At one point you started to work on an exhibition, which um, you guys put on this past summer at NYU, which was on the ephemera of David Wernerovich. I mean, when I went to go see it, I was extremely moved by it. There was something very intimate and personal and very rich about the selection of material that you guys decided to show. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that and how it came to be. The exhibit was was Marvin's idea, and uh, at some point he just asked me to to curate a section of the show based on what my the essay that I had written with him the previous summer, which was about Hujar and Voynerovich's relationship. Um, he gave me really good advice that was just like, he was like, think of the exhibition as an essay in, in three dimensions. Mm-hmm. Something that I've taken into like a lot of the way that I do research and the way that I think that show, parts of it were organized. And I know this is like, come about through conversations with like Marvin has just been that uh that you want to have materials that are effective that make you feel something and there's certain things that you find in in an archive that are more charged emotionally mm-hmm. and um I've thought a lot about curation in in a way of it, like in, in this way about energy and and trying to gather materials that conjure up an intense feeling there's certain things that you know journal pages or journal entries that like you know david was probably more emotionally like manic or feeling just really intensely Mm -hmm. um there's a potency to them yeah i you know because you've been there in some way or, mm-hmm. but also just, I don't know. I chose for the central cases of the, of like the section I did, I did the, the three deathbed photographs. That's David Warnerovich's photos of Peter Hujana's deathbed. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, which are just so emotionally charged, partly because, you know, like David did an essay about taking those photographs and filming a super eight in the room while 
Peter had stopped breathing, and before they called the nurse to come and check on, you know, to, to let them know that he died. Mm-hmm. I think another object that I included that I really liked was this, was a little index card, but David got a lot of correspondence um, after Peter died, and one of Peter's oldest friends sent him this letter saying, or this little note saying that, like, if, that if David knew that when Peter was young, he would walk to the back of the bus um, so that nobody would have to look at his face because he thought he was so, like, ugly or just, like, disgusting or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's just such an intense thing to feel. And it's very real. And, you know, considering how Hujar used the body in his work and his self-portraiture, I thought that was interesting. So... Since you've started making work with more of a concerted focus in terms of your subject matter, in terms of the types of pictures that you want to make, I'm curious what it was that you were after when you first started making photos and how that's changed for you. When I got to New York, I feel like that's when I first started taking photos more consciously and... Um, I guess mostly because I started actually photographing people. Mm-hmm. Um, I was photographing people I was interested in, like physically and like mentally. It wasn't like I was just photographing people that were available. Mm-hmm. Most of the first photos, like most of my like photos from the first two years of college, were I photographed a lot of men, and they were kind of a fantasy. I mean, I, I, when I was in high school, I didn't really, like, I wasn't really with anyone. It wasn't until I got to New York that I, like, I, I finally was with, like, people sexually. And there was this, like, big dilemma in my head of, like, how I could be, like, looked at as, like, a, as a thing of desire or, like, as a person, like, as a desirable person. So I did a lot of self-portraits and, like, trying to figure out how. Um, I was being seen by other people, um, especially when I was being seen in like a sexualized way. And at the time that I started doing the newspaper, like before that I had to hit like a really low point and just like personally, like um, emotionally and like spiritually, (laughs) I guess I put like my sexuality like on hold. Um, and I became concerned with trying to figure out other things about myself because I I really didn't, I was not very satisfied with, like, my body and, like, my operation, like, in the world. Mm-hmm. And I started becoming more concerned with the natural world and, like, this, like, and religion, like, became a really important thing in my life and it still is. I stopped photographing people and I stopped photographing these men, um... This is also like the time that I had a fallout, like a falling out with a friend who whose work was like, you know, all men and all men of like a particular type. And I just was like really, I was really trying to figure out like what photography was doing to like my perception of myself and like, especially like a particular type of queer photography that's like, you know, photographing strangers and just taking these like, and, and using 
people who use the camera in order to get into sexual situations with people, like, you know, take advantage of people by proxy of what the camera gets them access into. Mm -hmm. So I just got rid of the body in, like, a lot of my photographs, and um, the, the work really became about this, like, search, and that's when I started doing more landscapes. This past summer, you took a trip with your boyfriend, Michael, to the Pyrenees in France and Spain. I wonder if you could just talk about that trip because there seems to be a different quality in those pictures than some of your work that's come before. I've been trying to figure out how those those images fit in with everything. You know, I I think my work is... I've tried to keep it like autobiographical and I want it to be considered chronologically and you know this wouldn't have happened if I hadn't had gone through all the other you know phases of like understanding myself and figuring myself out and yeah those photographs I think for me we we shared the camera throughout the trip and we we keep doing that um so we share rolls of film and we take photos of each other in the throughout like with the camera we would make it a point every day during the walk to like to get naked <laughs> um and take photos just like in the landscape um and i've never really let anyone photograph me like it's just a maybe once i i let ian lewandowski photograph me i was like it mm -hmm. i had a really bad experience my freshman year with this guy who like asked to photograph me and then he just like started like telling me how I needed to work out and do this and do that. Oh it was just like the weirdest <laughs> um, situation. And uh, so th those photos are, they're like, they are about becoming more liberated and becoming and finding myself in this, I don't know, this beautiful situation with like someone who's like great and smart and, and doing a lot of things that like, that I wouldn't have done if I had been alone. So yeah, we we took a lot of photographs of each other prancing around mountains, <laughs> horses and <laughs> cows and fog and whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Swimming and one of the last interviews that we released was an archival interview with Hugh Edwards, the curator of, of prints and drawings at the Art Institute of Chicago. One of the things that really stuck with me was um when he was asked what photos he responds to the most, one of the things that he said was that he likes anything that makes him feel good and glad to be alive. <laughs> and I just really loved that. And when you first showed me some of those photos from, from the mountains this summer, that was the first thing that came to me and that I still feel every time I look at those. There's a joy and a freedom and a closeness and a tenderness which is a very interesting quality in in photos my hope is that all this work will just someday be this i don't know like a, an autobiography of of my life and hopefully it'll have all the phases of a life well fulfilled i believe in the tarot like a lot and like the uh the major arcana is this like map of life and every year you have a year card which tells you on what to focus on and uh yeah i just 
just want my photography to be kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot for doing this. Yeah, thank you. That was my conversation with Marcelo Yanez that we recorded in Lesterel, Quebec. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhame. Original music in this episode by Adam Feingold. To find out more about the show, visit us at magichourpodcast.org and follow us on Instagram at magichourpodcast. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.